Well, we are past our introduction, and we will be looking at our first major event, creation, today. And it is so important and so foundational to everything else. Remember the last chart that I showed you last time? The one that had the foundation-type things that build upon each other? Well, this is at the bottom of that pyramid or structure, if you will. So if we get this one wrong, then everything else is going to be a little bit distorted. So we're going to spend more time on creation than probably any other area. And another reason we're going to spend a good amount of time on the first event, and I've got it on a timeline because it's historical, it's real. And the other reason that we want to deal with it is because this is under attack by the culture in which we live in. Everywhere you go, and it's growing in terms of how this idea affects every area of thought, the idea of evolution. And the Bible does not support evolution, and most Christians are intimidated and don't have an answer. Don't, In fact, they don't understand the difference. And what happens is there's a lot of Christians that believe that the Bible is inspired and know that the Bible teaches that God is creator, but because you're bombarded with this idea, well, science has proven that evolution is true. So what most Christians end up believing is, well, maybe God somehow used evolution to create. In other words, part of what God did in creating was through an evolutionary process. Because how can you go against science? Well, one thing I'm going to try and show you is really there is very, very little evidence for Darwinian evolution, of which all other forms of evolution are based on, and all the other concepts that are permeating all the other areas of thought in secular humanism are based on a faulty theory. And that's all it is. It's a theory with very little evidence. And before we're done with this event, in the apologetic portion, I'm going to try and demonstrate that even more so. But first of all, we're going to look at it from the positive. We got started on it last time, and we looked at verse 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And I said that was something of a summary statement, and then... uh, we move from 1-1 into six days of creation, 1-1 and 2. And we saw that right off the bat, we have an introduction to who God is in a very simple statement that I told you is every much a scientific statement as anything that you would find in any chemistry, biology, physics textbook. And I gave you a little bit of reasoning for that. So we look at Genesis 1, no Big Bang. That's a secularist attempt to try to come up with how things came about, a Big Bang. And there's a lot of weaknesses to it, and whole books have been written from a creationist perspective that demonstrate that there's a lot of big problems with the Big Bang. And many scientists, particularly astrophysicists, are aware of those problems, and many of them are searching for a new theory because they feel that that's not a good explanation. 
We saw very early on, even though the universe is vast and huge and incomprehensibly vast, the focus is planet Earth. Earth is the priority. And what God is doing deals with the Earth. Everything else was created for the benefit of what God is doing on planet Earth. That's the biblical viewpoint. Certainly not the secularist's viewpoint. His viewpoint is we're just a tiny speck in a vast and huge universe, and this universe has no purpose, so there's no purpose with this little tiny speck. Everything just kind of worked out such that there's the possibility of life on this tiny little planet that is totally insignificant and of no value and of no significance given the bigger picture of the universe. That's the opposite of a biblical worldview. Earth is a priority. We looked at the nature of God in our little portion on creation last week, and we won't go over that, but real quickly, God is transcendent. He's not continuous with the creation. This is huge. This is only the biblical worldview perspective. Separate, distinct. Creator, creation, distinction. He is creator, not a force, not an idea, but creator. That is huge as well. He's Trinitarian, and we saw that right off the bat. This is your foundation for theology. Trinitarian God. And it's only the biblical worldview that presents a God that is Trinitarian. Even the so-called Christian cults all deny the doctrine of the Trinity. That's what makes them false cults and false religions. And we talked about some of the perfections that are already somewhat implied in Genesis 1.1 and Genesis 1, and I gave you a little brief overview of them. And by perfections, I prefer the word perfections rather than attributes, the attributes of God. You and I have attributes but when it comes to God, God has attributes, but in terms of God, they are perfect. That's why perfections is a better description of who God is. You and I have attributes, God has perfections. And this is opposite of what the world thinks. God is not finite. God is infinite, and all of his perfections are so. So those are just a somewhat starting point for a theology of God, a biblical theology of God, which is the starting point of everything. So we ended by looking at day one of the six days of creation, and we will spend at least the next hour continuing through Genesis 1, and we'll see how it's foundational for lots of things. Day one, there's patterns to the days. I talked about that last week. You have what you might call revelation, where God speaks, God said. Then we have the articulation of what God said in the first day, let there be light. And then immediately following, we have the accomplishment of what God articulated and in day one, and it was so. And we said that the means that God used was his very word. He speaks things into existence. Things come into existence as a result of the spoken word. I gave you Psalm 33, 6 that supported that last time. And it's worth reading again. By the word of the Lord, the word of the Lord, the heavens were made. And by the breath 
of his mouth all their host. Now that's synonymous parallelism, and by definition, Hebrew poetry, such as this, you have one line that says, gives an idea, and then the second line reiterates the same idea using different words. That's characteristic of Hebrew poetry. And if you go down to verse 9, for he spoke and it was done. Line 2, he commended and it stood fast. Synonymous parallelism. But the emphasis and the teaching is that God, by his word, created all things. If you want some other verses, for example, in the New Testament, Hebrews 11.3, by faith, we understand that the worlds were prepared by the word of God. So this is not just Old Testament. So that what is seen was not made out of things which are visible. In other words, God created the visible universe by his word. They just didn't pop up. They just didn't come about. John, the Gospel of John, chapter 1, verses 1 through 3. In the beginning was the word... And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And in verse 14, who is the Word? The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. Jesus is the Word. And verse 2 of John 1, he was in the beginning with God. And then verse 3 is the key verse. All things came into being through him. And he's the Word. So it's by the word of God through Jesus Christ. And then it goes on. And apart from him, nothing came into being that has come into being. So it's God's word. Still review. There's other verses that speak of God creating using wisdom. God creating using omniscient power. I gave you one of those verses. And I also noted that that there's nothing natural. This is... Six days of supernatural action. God is putting together a universe. Part of the theology here, again, God has revealed. God reveals things. He's not silent. God is not a silent God. That goes against some theological thoughts. The biblical God is one that reveals himself. He speaks. Things happen. And this revelation is important because it's also the uh, foundation for language and communication. We'll see that as well. The science of day one, some ideas here. Well, warning, today's physics may not be the same as what is going on on day one or during the six days. Because this is a process that God chose, not because he had to create in six days, in fact, the question you should ask is is not how long did God take to create, but why did he do it over six days? He could have instantaneously created a full-blown universe without any days. Well, I think there's a reason for that, and when, we'll, when we get to Moses, Moses gives us an answer to that question. He created in six days to establish a pattern for the week of work and one day of rest. And when we get to the beginning of chapter 2, one of the things we'll note is God rested, not because he was tired, because he is omnipotent and doesn't get tired, but that's part of the pattern as well, one day of rest. So, whatever physics or chemistry or biology 
that we observe today is very, very different from what God is doing at that time. In fact, on day one, there is no biology. There's no such thing as biology. Where is the origin of biology in uh, in the Bible? Yeah, day three, creation of plants. So there's no biology at all. So you can't take what's going on in physics today or any area of science project it back and try to make conclusions concerning what's going on during the creative process. God is, in fact, establishing physical laws. And later on, I'm going to show that these physical laws are under the control of God. They're, they're not separate from him. That's part of a biblical view of science. We'll get into that. And on day one, what God is doing is probably creating the entire electromagnetic spectrum. This is what scientists, physicists describe. Light is simply one portion of that entire electromagnetic spectrum. So God created light. The word electromagnetic spectrum was not current when Moses wrote. (laughs) So when he says light, it probably included things beyond this physical light. That's the essence of day one. Now, sometimes the question is asked, how can you have light since, isn't this a contradiction because the sun is not created until day four? Does anybody have an answer to that question? If you just think physically, if you just think in terms of science, can you have light without the sun? Yes. Yeah, there's... Light is produced as a result of chemical reactions. Light is produced as a result of nuclear reactions. Electricity can produce sources of light. So there's other sources of light besides that that comes from the sun. Now, some people think that, well, maybe what's on day one is simply God. God is light. Maybe it's just simply God's light. That's one viewpoint, and that certainly is a possibility. But I prefer the idea that God just simply created light in general, which can come in different forms, as I just described. And it's not till day four that he basically creates heavenly bodies that radiate the light that he has already created on day one. I'm puzzled about... uh, Could you give us an example of what give us... Describe the examples they give us, Mike, but I didn't this. <laughs> I mean, is there an example? I mean, as we look out... Well, I gave you examples. If you, a, a chemical reaction sometimes will, in fact, emit light. It colors, chemicals. Well, it's light. Light. It'll produce light as well. Well, when you burn something, that's a chemical reaction. You burn something and it emits light. Okay? <laughs> There's a good example right there. There you go. There's an answer to your question. Two examples. Okay, day one. Probably creation of original water mass. Creation of original water mass. You see that from verse 2. Probably a spherical mass of water with probably gravitational pull, but again, I'm speculating only based on the data that we have in Genesis 1. Earth is at the center of the universe. World-class physicist assumes that from Genesis 1, and he has written a book that deals with time and the issue of starlight and 
issues related to young earth. Russ Humphreys, he lived here for many years. Scientist at Sandia National Labs until he retired. And a big point in his theory is that earth is probably at the center of the universe. That's a real problem for the secularists. Because that reinforces the idea that there's something special about the earth if everything revolves around it in terms of being in the center. So this seems to be implications that we can draw based on basically the text that are related to science. Probably a high gravity, original water mass, perhaps high density, and possibly hot. And all of these come from Russ Humphreys. In other words, this is part of what he theorizes was present on day one. He would be the first to admit that the data that we have is is not not extensive. All we have is what we have is in Revelation here. But it's consistent with anything that you might think in terms of science. Okay, nature of God, origin of language. We started looking at the foundation of language. First of all, language comes from a God that communicates. God is not silent. God communicates. And we saw that from verse 3. And God said. In fact, every day of creation begins with and God said. And some days have and God said more than once. Which tells us God communicates. And it's emphasized in the text over and over. And God said. Emphasis. God is not silent. The secularist doesn't believe in God at all, so certainly in their thinking, there's no God, so there's no communication from God. Means of creation, this is part of the foundation concerning language, is that he spoke things, in other words, used language, so language is not trivial. Language is very important in terms of who God is. So our foundation of language tells us that language is very important. It is the very means of communication. It's the basis of how God communicates to us in his word. So his word is very, very important. These are not trivial matters, the idea of language. All of these are implied in Genesis 1, beginning in verse 3. Thirdly, another foundation stone, the language. Language in terms of man originates in God. Its origin is in God, not man. That goes contrary to evolutionary thinking. I mean, that's the only source of language from the evolutionary perspective, is man himself. God begins to set up what we could call categories. God names things. In fact, that's where we left off last time. Notice uh, Genesis 1, and in verse 3, he says, Then God said, Let there be light, and there was light. And then verse 4, God saw that the light was good, and God separated the light from the darkness. First of all, he's separating, making distinctions. These are all things that language, this is a characteristic of language, make distinctions. God sets these things up, distinguishes things. And then verse 5, And God called the light day, and darkness he called night. God is naming, God is setting up categories, making distinctions and giving names to things. It's not linguists that do this. God is way ahead of them. God's the one that sets language up. What are nouns? 
nouns are categories. So God set up our minds to be able to think and understand in terms of distinguishing categorical things. And when we speak of dogs or cats or people or objects, we put them in categories and use them in our communication with one another. So all these categories, what the text is already telling us on day one, is God is setting these things up. Later on, he's going to make separation between waters and land masses, again, setting up these categories such that when he creates man, he creates man with the ability to be able to distinguish these categories and formulate ideas in his thinking. And one of the first tasks that he gives to man is to do what? In Genesis 2, naming the animals. In other words, he's giving the ability of Adam to distinguish, okay, this creature has certain characteristics that distinguishes it and separates it from these other creatures that have different characteristics. And God gave him that ability, and the implication of the text is also the ability to communicate with other creatures these very categories. But the the setting up of categories is under what God does when he names light and darkness. And he does some naming later on as well. So that's a foundation point in terms of our biblical foundation for for language. And then when God creates man, he builds into man these same abilities and a brain that is able to separate into categories and do all the functions of language. And it appears that Adam was created and built with all of that ability immediately. It didn't evolve didn't come from grunts that evolved into more refined descriptions. So when God built man, this is part of the image of God, he built man in such a way that he could set up categories and name things, and he could make distinctions in the natural realm. That's all science. That's what science does. It just makes distinctions and categorizes. This is all part of what God built in demand. It didn't come as a result of evolution. Adler, an educator, a philosopher, I guess you could say, an expert in literature, makes the following statement. He says, Do you realize that every one of us has performed the greatest intellectual act we will ever perform for the rest of our life by the time we are six years old? Do you realize that? And what is that intellectual act that you perform? Learning language and without having known one. Exactly. And we pick that up. Little kids pick it up. In fact, the best time to teach a kid a language, say multiple languages, before age six, because they just pick it up. So God built that into man such that he has the ability to develop that and to develop it rather rapidly. You've noticed that in your uh, little grandchild, right? Not even six years old and already putting into categories. You can identify certain things, give them names or identify them by names, and see certain actions of those objects. This whole concept of language comes from God. Totally contrary to the culture we live in. 
So God is making distinctions. This is another, well, there's an assessment on day one. It was good, verse 4, I read that one. God makes distinctions, separating the light from the darkness. And in some cases, there's a blessing. There's not a blessing in day one. But later on, this pattern of distinctions and blessings, you'll find that. Some of the distinctions that God makes, all of these distinctions are the basis for thinking and thought and the basis for communication. Once you can formulate a thought, that serves as a foundation and a basis to be able to communicate those thoughts to someone else. That's what language is all about. And eventually the basis of science. So ultimately science is founded in scripture, founded in God. Real science. A basis for making distinctions also involves moral discernment, moral distinctions, rights and wrongs, ethics. See how that stems from what God is doing in Genesis 1? Day 1. All of this is day 1. The basis of making moral judgments, discernment is what we call that. And it's the basis, eventually, after sin, of God's judgment, where God holds man accountable to those decisions that he makes. All of these are implications of day one when he creates light. Part of the pattern of the days, there's usually a naming motif, and in day one he names the light, and God names the night or the darkness, night. And then there's an ending in terms of a chronology, and we have that in verse 5 as well. And there was evening, and there was morning, one day. So I might describe that as chronology. So you usually have these seven elements. In some cases, one or two are, are not present, but you'll see that same pattern throughout. Now, I'm not going to go through every day in that much detail, I just go over day one because there's so much there. Not just light. All these other things as well. An important thing to note that goes contrary to evolution, it was so. God speaks, it was so. We have immediacy. It doesn't say after millions of years, God finally gets the job done. And we have a divine evaluation. It was good. It's not tainted by sin. The original creation. This is huge. We're going to get more into that as we get into chapter 3. An evaluation. And after the creation, on many of the days, we have this divine evaluation. So language, number 6. When we get to chapter 3, we're going to see that language is perverted by sin. The whole idea of language is not neutral. It's tied to morality as well. And you're going to see who's the first perverter of language. In Genesis 3, the serpent, very good. Genesis 3, the serpent, distorts language. And when we get to Genesis 3, we'll show the distortion. The woman buys into the distortion. So... Language is perverted by sin. This is where lies come in, distortions. Number seven, we'll see later on that God is going to judge language at Babel, and different languages don't come as a result of different cultures. Different cultures come from different languages. It's the very opposite. 
the biblical worldview tells us that languages are confused, is the biblical word. People, and I'm not sure what happened biologically or even socially, God did something at Babel to cause people to not be able to to communicate using the same verbiage, same words, and as a result of that, we have a scattering, and as a result of the scattering, we have culture. So it's not culture that gives us language, but it's what God did in terms of judgment at Babel. There's your biblical foundations for language, at least some of them, at least a starting point, and you can develop it further as you work further into Scripture. And this is what I mean by foundations, and those of you that are writing papers, this is what I want you to do, except expand it for whatever area that you choose to write a paper on. So you might expand it all the way into the New Testament, and you might go beyond just what Genesis says, this is just the foundational part, and give it a full-blown biblical description of what all of Scripture teaches on that one area that you deal with in terms of a biblical worldview on, in this case, language. So day one, we have a creator-creation distinction, God separate, that's Genesis 1-1. We have six days of creation with no Big Bang. The means of creation again, God speaking, nothing natural. We have the origin of language, and thus the origin of science, and thus the origin of technology. And you could take, say, technology and do a biblical study on it in terms of foundations. Origin of physics. Where do I see that? Origin of physics. Probably all the way into verse 2, when it speaks of the earth being composed of water, There's probably a gravitational involvement there. Optics, the the whole, that's part of physics. Optics, light, or the electromagnetic spectrum is a whole area of study of optics. Maybe you want to write a paper on optics. Chemistry, verse 2, you have H2O. doesn't spell it out, but what is water made of? And it goes all the way back to verse 2. Number six, all of this is a work of God, no naturalism. I think God is the subject of, I think, 33 sentences in Genesis 1. 33 times he's the subject of the sentence, so everything that takes place is God, nothing natural. It's all supernatural. There's this immediacy of fulfillment. I'm going to come back to this several times. No long ages. Believers today have bought into the idea that the earth is old. I think that's a compromise. And as we move further and further into the biblical text, I hope that you'll see that the earth is relatively young. That goes contrary to current thinking. Immediacy of fulfillment, when God created, let there be light, there was light. And we're going to see that throughout the days. We even have a definition of day, no eternity, eternal time. I think, I think time begins, as I said, in 1-1, in the beginning. That's the beginning. Verse 5, I think, defines for us as clearly as Moses could 
define a day when he says, And God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening, so we have kind of a cycle of time here. God is establishing a cycle of time. You have evening, and there was morning one day. So one day, he's defining how he's using the days of creation. They're defined by a dark cycle and a light cycle. So I take the days of Genesis 1 as solar days. We'll come back to this, talk more about that later. There was no light. Yes, there was light. He created light. This presupposes that God is going to set things up such that there will be a rotation of a heavenly body that, or actually a planet around a heavenly, heavenly body that produces this cycle. For now, somehow, God has already established the, the cycle and like I said, how, we don't know how he does that. But on day one, there's already some cycle that he sets up. It's not till day four that we see it associated with the sun. Did you explain no eternal time that What I mean by that, secularists basically see time in an eternal sense, and I think Christians as well. And, and I'm not dogmatic on this. My view is there's a beginning to time and there's an end to time and then there's a there's a state outside of the time frame that we call eternal and God exists in an eternal state or realm and I see time as part of the creation. I can't prove it. I just get it from in the beginning. Seems to give us a, a marker there. So what you're really saying in that little bullet right there is definition of the day is a portion of eternal time. No. Set apart from eternal time. No, no. No, it's within time. In other words, first day is within, in the beginning. Genesis 1, 1, in the beginning, this is the beginning of time. And immediately in the, in the beginning of time, God began to create in six days. And those days that he created, there's a night portion and a light portion. And time is not an eternal thing. There's no eternal aspect of time. It's part of the creation. That's what I'm trying to convey there. And just from the text, I, I can't prove that scientifically. In fact, I can't prove any any of this. Yeah. Oh, you can? Yeah. <laughs> oh, good. Come on up here. So I, I basically see time beginning right there in the beginning, Genesis 1-1. And it ends at the end of the Millennial Kingdom after the Great White Throne Judgment. And then there's, I think, an eternal state. That gets into eschatology, and that gets into the next course. Day, day one. So, number nine here is the earth is relatively young, not old. And those that believe in a relatively young earth are in the very, very small minority, even within the church. Day two, we have a stretching out of space. I'm going to have to pick up the pace here. We won't look at every verse, so let me just summarize some of them. Look at verse six. Then God said, let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters. Now, the waters that are referred to here are those that are noted in verse two. Spirit of God was moving over the surface of the deep, you might even see, the surface of the waters, the surface of the deep. 
before that little phrase there. Verse 6, then God said, let there be an expanse in the middle. In other words, if you can envision this sphere of water, and now God is putting an ex- whatever this expanse thing is in the midst of the waters, and then he's going to stretch out that expanse. Does that make sense? Stretching out of space. The word for expanse, or King James, translates it firmament. What are some, any of the other, any different translations in your Bible there? Okay, so it's expanse. The Hebrew word is rakia. All of you can pronounce that, right? Rakia. As soon as you saw that, you knew what it was, right? Yep. <laughs> Essentially, it means spread out thinness. It can refer to anything that is kind of spread out and made thin. There are two basic views of those of us that are conservative and believe what the Bible is teaching here, separating the waters. A traditional view, and probably the most popular view, because the second view that I'm going to give you is more recent and I think better fits not only science but what we have in the biblical text. Most of the books that you'll read will tell you that what God did is separated the atmospheric waters, and there is water vapor in the atmosphere. The atmosphere is never devoid of water particles. So the separating is the atmospheric waters and the oceans, the waters that remain on this ball of water, which at this stage is just ocean. That's the more common view. But I think the better view, and you'll, we'll see this later on as well, and Russ Humphreys, that world-class scientist, he proposes that at the edge of the universe, we would probably find oceans, or an ocean, outside edge of the universe. And that's probably what we have in this passage. And what God has, is doing on day two is separating the waters and creating basically a universe without stars and planets yet, but he is separating these waters out on day two. Make sense? Separating the waters out from what? Well, from this, from this, no, 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 no. This ball of water separating beyond an atmosphere to the edge of the universe, you would find water. Because it's coming from Earth? Well, it's separated from that mass. Yeah, from that mass, that initial mass. H2O out there. Scientists cannot observe the edge of the universe yet. We have not observed that. When we are able, if we are able, we will discover, probably, based on this, waters. So here's some science on day two, stretching out of space. That's this idea. And by the way, this is somewhat common in uh, scriptures. There's lots of passages that speak of God stretching out. Let me give you some other ones. For example, Psalm 104, verse 2. The psalmist says, Covering yourself with light as with a cloak, stretching out heavens like a tent curtain. Like if you would open up your windows with a tent curtain, that's how God, he's opening it up, so you have curtain here, and you have curtain here. He's using that analogy. Psalmist. Isaiah, there are several in Isaiah. Let me just give you a couple of them. Isaiah forty twenty two. it is he who sits above the circle of the earth. 
That whole idea views the earth as spherical. So when people accuse Christians of being backward and believing in a flat earth, any of those that, if they exist, don't understand Isaiah 40. Probably speaking of a spherical earth. He who sits above the sphere of the earth, you might even interpret it, and its inhabitants are like grasshoppers. So you look at these tiny creatures, like grasshoppers, who stretches out the heavens like, and then again he uses the imagery of a curtain, stretches out the heavens like a curtain and spreads them out like a tent to dwell in, stretching out a space. Isaiah 44.24, thus the Lord, did you get that, 44.24? Thus the Lord, your Redeemer, and the one who formed you from the womb, I, the Lord, am the maker of all things, stretching out, stretching out the heavens by myself and spreading out the earth all alone. So he separates space from the earth. Stretching out of space. It's possible that when he does this, he spreads material throughout the universe. It's not clear. Either that, or he creates out of nothing heavenly bodies later on, on day four. But it's possible that he spreads out material in space. But he does the light. Is that Kevin Hubbard's book? What's the one about the light? That oh, that's later, yeah. Uh, the dealing with the... But just because stars take billions of light years to get here, right. it doesn't matter because it all started here. It does all the... Yeah, all the nuclear all physics. Matter. Right. This is a theory that maybe he spread out, but this is not necessary possibility either way. So when he creates on day four, he just coalesces material into planets and into, into uh, stars. Either way. God's doing it. He can do it however he wants to. I'm just putting this there to show to show that it speaks in terms of things that we think of scientifically. So we have separation of water mass, origin of hydraulics. If you want to deal with all of the characteristics of water, there's a whole science called hydraulics. As an engineer, I think I took two at least two courses on hydraulics because we deal with water in engineering. So if you wanted to write a paper on the biblical foundation for hydraulics, you could do that. I don't see any takers. <laughs> Maybe McKenzie. <laughs> so on day two, we have the origin of all the science of astrophysics. So if you wanted to write a paper on astrophysics, you have to start on day two. And then you can develop it further. You have more data on day four. But the spreading out of space is on day two. That's the origin of astrophysics. It seems like those things, uh, they're human endeavors. He, he spread out the thing, and it's just amazing people can study it. Yes. It makes sense out of it because of that. And, well, he, and set, he set it up. It, he didn't start the science of it. He started he built it in such a way that we can comprehend and understand it. And what we have done in our understanding, we've created these studies of these areas. Yeah. And we call that science. Yeah. Right. Okay, day three. First of all, we have land masses. And we have the origin of life. And creationists have this theory, and this goes along, we'll talk more about this when we talk about the flood, 
that before the flood, perhaps there was something of a uniting of all of the land masses before the flood. There's some physical evidence for this, by the way, and that is usually described as Pangea, one continent, because what we have, notice what we have on day three, then God said, let the waters below the heavens, now we're talking about the waters below the heavens, and by the way, that little word, below the heavens, can refer to the atmosphere, but it can also refer to outer space. And it's used in both ways in Genesis 1. When we get to the creation of the birds, the birds that fly in the heavens, that's the atmosphere. But when it speaks, we'll see on day 4, when it speaks of God putting the, the sun and the moon, he says, in the heavens, that's outside the atmosphere. That's into space. And then he creates stars. These are in the, the heavens. See that? So the word heavens is used both ways here. And what I'm suggesting that on day two, when he spreads out the waters, that he's doing it above the space usage of heavens. Okay? So, let's see, verse nine. Let the waters below the heavens be gathered into one place. So now he's gathering oceans. And let the dry land appear. And it was so. Immediacy of fulfillment. And how the land appears is not clear. Maybe he created all of the elements of the land and they're submerged and now they come to the surface. Or maybe it's possible that this, this is the ten-year-old, remember, explanation that I told you about? Last time, if you ask your 10-year-old, this is what he will understand. Or maybe God separates the waters and now creates landmass on the surface of the waters. And God called, there's the naming again, God called the dry land earth, and the gathering of the waters he called seas, or we use the word oceans as well. And God saw that it was good. There's your divine evaluation on day three. And then, uh, verse 11, then God said again two times on day three. But anyway, Pangea, so he creates at least a continent, and the surface of the waters, or the waters are probably just on the crust or the surface of the earth, and there's material that he perhaps had already created and doesn't tell us. Or maybe this is at the point where he coalesces all these other and creates all these other elements. But at least there's at least one continent. And the evidence here is if you fit Africa with South America and America, they somewhat fit together. And then after the flood, if there was a separating of continents, and I'm going to give you all that evidence, then you have an ocean between here and oceans between all these other continental bodies as well. Pangea. Make sense? So after the flood, post-flood, we're going to have continental sprint, where the continents are moving at a rapid pace away. Those that, that uh, study tectonics, it's a whole science in itself, related to earthquakes, you familiar with tectonics? Call it, uh, what do you call it, continental drift, quarter of an inch at a time, or less than that. After the flood, there was continental sprint, not just slight movements. We'll talk more about that. So we have, first of all, plant life. Personally, I think the first word, all of you can pronounce that, right? 
Deshah, that's the Hebrew word, probably vegetation in general. Now, some Hebrew scholars think that we have three categories here. Probably there's only two categories. This is a general description of vegetation in general. And then you have two categories. One, Eshab, which is herbage, or all kinds of smaller plants, non-seed-bearing. And then you have seed-bearing fruit trees. Etz, etz, fruit trees, Hebrew word. Seed-bearing trees, two kinds. So seed-bearing trees that bear fruit and all the other. So you have vegetation into two categories. Herbage? Herbage. That's what man is doing now. They're uh, genetic modifying, which do not produce seeds. Okay. Tampering with God's creation. Some implications here. Vegetation is created on earth. What does secular say? Not in the oceans. Well, there's, there's obviously plant life in the oceans. But what I'm getting at is the theory of evolution says that life came in a primordial soup or an ocean. The Bible says, no, it's on land. It comes from land. Contrary. We're going to see contradictions with evolution throughout this text. And basically... Your choice is, if you want to believe in evolution, you're going totally contrary to Genesis 1. What? You're going totally contrary to Genesis 1. So you have a choice to make. You have vegetation before the sun. That's a huge problem with some creationists, even, some believers. But if we're talking about a few days, it doesn't matter. If the earth is relatively young, that's no big deal. Plants can survive in the dark. Plus, there's already light anyway on day one. Here's an interesting one. We have fruit trees before animal life. And some fruit trees, in fact, most fruit trees need bees to pollinate to be able to produce the fruit. And there's a whole group of creationist view of believers called progressive creationism that adopts the evolutionary time frame, accepts the evolutionary time frame, and basically says that God interjects over different periods of long ages the six days that we see in Genesis, and the six days are long periods of time. So this would be a major problem. You have, you have plant life long periods of time before bees come to pollinate. Well, can't have that. So it supports relatively young birds. So on day three, just some observations we might make concerning science. The origin of oceanography, day three. And actually, that's preceded, it appears, from verse two, that perhaps everything was ocean from the very beginning. But at least in terms of distinction with land masses, you have the origin of oceanography. Secondly, the origin of geology, and along with that, tectonics, because now you have land masses, or a land mass, at least, which has geology to it. Origin of botany originates on Earth, not the primordial soup. Vegetation before sunlight, that contradicts evolution. Number five, fruit trees before animals. And you want to notice in the text when it says, and the, verse 12, and the earth brought forth vegetation, plants yielding seed after their kind, after their kind. I'm going to come back to that word when we get to the animals. 
But in terms of plants, we already have boundaries in terms of distinct types of plants. Plants reproduce after their kind. Pear trees don't produce cherries. So don't even look for them, all right? So this has been verified, by the way, scientifically. Now that we know about DNA, this is pretty well accepted in the scientific community in biology. We have what the Bible already has told us is there's fixity of kinds. In other words, you can't go beyond certain boundaries. And we'll talk some more about changes within species. Well, but it's, it's a very, very issue. An animal, you can't feed them. Well, evolution, uh, evolution goes against this. Now, that is, we have to be Well, everybody believes that. That most people believe that. Most people that believe in evolution don't believe in the fixity kinds. If there's boundaries and you can't evolve into a new species, then there's no evolution. Evolutionary theory basically denies and goes against that concept. Genesis 1 gives us that concept. So on day 4, heavenly bodies are created. And let's read it first of all. And God said, let there be lights in the expanse, in the rakia, the thinness of space, or the thinness or in space, the expanse of the heavens. Remember I told you? Okay, there's expanse here. To separate the day from the night, this is their purpose, and let them be for signs and for seasons and for days and for years. In other words, they will set all of the patterns for seasons, they will be used in terms for navigation, so signs, and all these other areas. They have a purpose, serve a purpose. And let them, verse 15, let them be for lights in the expanse of the heavens to give light on the earth. And then we have the immediacy of fulfillment, and it was so. And God made the two great lights, the greater light to govern the day and the lesser light to govern the night. So, night. He made the stars also. And we'll come back to that in a moment. Okay, a few observations here. Earth is created before stars and galaxies. That goes contrary to evolutionary thinking. I'm going to give you a chart that puts these side by side, what the evolutionist believes in a moment. But Earth is not supposed to be created before the stars and the galaxies. Moon on day four. There's lots of theories as to how the moon was formed. Well, God created it. Heavenly bodies on day four, which goes totally contrary to progressive creationism as well. And here's the interesting part. Notice all the attention is to these heavenly bodies. You know, in verse 14, let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to separate, etc., etc. Verse 15, let there be for lights in the expanse. In other words, given a purpose here, God made the two great lights. He's talking about the sun and the moon here to govern the day, and the lesser light to govern the nights. And in the Hebrew, there's only two words there. Stars also. It's translated, and he made the stars also. In the, in the Hebrew text, the, the he made is not there. It's just stars also. Almost like they're insignificant. And that kind of summarized it this way. Oh, by the way, I know you're going to ask the question, where do stars come from? <laughs> I'm not so concerned about the stars. I'm concerned about what I'm going to do on Earth and the importance of the, the two lights, the sun and the moon. But, okay, 
By the way, I made the stars also. Or, kind of as a sidelight, because I know you're going to be curious about it, I made the stars. Because it's easy for me, stars also. This is kind of the impression the text gives you. Incidentally, the stars also. Only since you were wondering, <laughs> because my focus and my concern, this is God speaking, is planet Earth and that that affects more closely planet Earth. But since you were only wondering, or as an afterthought, stars also. See that? Everything is geocentric. Everything is focused on what God is doing on Earth. So this vast universe, it's important. I'm not denying that. But in terms of what God is doing and what God places in terms of his working, it's what happens on planet Earth and ultimately mankind on planet Earth. It's all leading up to that. And how he does the stars, did he coalesce material he had already created, or does he create it out of nothing? I'll let you take whatever view you want on that one. And the New Testament kind of confirms what we see in the heavens. Even Paul was a good astrophysicist. In 1 Corinthians 15.41, there is one glory of the sun. In other words, there's differences in characteristics in the heavenly bodies. One glory of the sun, another of the moon. In other words, there's a difference. The moon is a reflector of light. The sun is a generator of light. And by the way, that's fusion that creates light. And another glory of stars. So stars are distinct. And for even stars, for star differs from star in glory. There's different stars. And astrophysicists have recognized differences in stars. In fact, they have all kinds of categories. They have red giant stars, super giants, white and yellow dwarfs, variable stars, pulsars, binaries, planetary nebulae, neutron stars. So there are, Paul knew that in the first century. He didn't give them all these names, but he knew that there was differences, distinctions. The Bible's up to date. In fact, we're just barely catching up with what the Bible, in fact, we're not, we'll never catch up. Let's take a break. Ran out of slides. <laughs> <laughs>